Welcome to BIV Today, the daily business podcast from the Business in Vancouver newspaper and from BIV.com. I'm Haley Wooden. Today on the show, why more entrepreneurs are considering co-op business models, plus Pitching for the Purse, a program designed to facilitate female entrepreneurship across Canada. You're listening to BIV Today. Three finalists will be moving forward in the Forum for Women Entrepreneurs 2018 Pitch for the Purse program. The Dragon's Den style competition awards the best pitch with $25,000. But beyond that, the program really is designed to support female entrepreneurship across Canada. I'm joined now by Christina Anthony, who has come on in previous years to talk about the program. She is the founder and chair emeritus of the Forum for Women Entrepreneurs. Christina, thanks for coming in. Thanks. Yeah, thanks for having me. Year to year, how much would you say has changed for female entrepreneurs? I feel like I ask you this every year, are the needles moving? What would you say in 2018? Have there been changes? Yeah, I mean, I think the needle is totally moving. I think that there, uh, you know, I think that with the support of programs like ours, but there, there are other amazing organizations across the country and, you know, and, and really across the world, uh, really putting a focus on the, the need to provide mentorship and education to help advance uh, anyone. And in particular, um, uh, in, in this case, women entrepreneurs, um, because education, you know, learning, how better to do something or learning more about anything will improve uh, improve people's odds of success. Of course. Now you're in a unique position to hear directly from entrepreneurs at varying stages in their careers. What would you say are the, the biggest barriers they face in success? Well, I think one of the biggest barriers is just access to a network of people and, and so that those resources are close at hand. Uh, and I think that women in particular are, uh, and it's, it, I mean, it's, I hesitate to make generalizations, but I think that there are many women who, uh, you know, are busy beyond trying to run their businesses with, you know, other demands on their time in terms of, you know, organizing their families or loved ones or, you know, um, um, things that take their time. And they're not as likely to uh, have that extra time to build these networks and then have access to people who can help them. So that's why we uh, have the Forum for Women Entrepreneurs so that we can go out there and be that network for somebody and that sort of easy access to this information and the people. But it's really the women entrepreneurs themselves who are making it all happen. They're the ones who then have to kind of step in and embrace the the help and decide, you know, what they're going to do to change uh, and improve their businesses going forward. And they do a fantastic job at that. In addition to help, it's just incredibly useful to, to see an example of someone who has maybe gone through the particular challenge one is facing or who has achieved a certain balance. It's nice to be able to brainstorm and see experience and seek out mentors too. Yeah. And I think, I think they get um, beyond the mentors. They get, I think they get a lot of peer mentorship from being involved in our programs and really being able to hear uh, either best practices from each other or just really being able to have someone else to share those war stories with. Cause I think that the world of an entrepreneur can be quite lonely. Um, and, you know, people get to know, uh, you know, those in their sector. Um, but, you know, you rarely would have the opportunity for someone who runs a, you know, an organic skincare line to, you know, connect with someone who owns a bunch of restaurants or something like that. And so we really try to bring people together because in different sectors, I think there's a lot of learnings that they, sh- they can share with each other. Mm-hmm. Now, this is the third year you've run this Pitch for the Purse program. How would you say it's evolved year over year? Well, it's, it's grown a lot. We've, uh, we've had over 130 applicants uh, this year. Um, and the, the applicants in, um, 
anybody who applies get the education uh, from us in terms of how to access capital, how to pitch, you know, where to access capital. Um, but the, you know, over the last few years, what we found is that everybody uh, who's made it into our semifinals, which is um, uh, has been uh, 10 people a year for the first two years and 12 people this year, um, but in the past years have have achieved what they were looking for. So uh, if they were looking for equity financing or they were looking to try to, uh, you know, improve the terms of their debt financing with their banks, everybody got what they wanted. And right now, from what we've been able to track, um, companies in the semifinals of the last two years have raised over $12 million in financing. Wow. So, you know, we're, we're not directly bringing uh, investors to these companies or anything like that. But what we do is we provide the education and the mentorship so that they can go out there, you know, armed and ready to seek the capital that they need. And really capital is the fuel of a business. If you don't have the money in the business to, you know, be able to invest in what you need to grow it, then it just won't grow. And it, it, it really is like fuel. It's like putting gas in your car. If it's, you know, if you don't have it to put in, then it dies. Um, and so we really are passionate uh, about this program and providing that education and mentorship because we think it's the only way to break the barriers to access to capital for women entrepreneurs. Absolutely. And of course, these entrepreneurs, they come to you with their idea, with a business. They're maybe already rolling, having some level of success. What do you think the program really teaches them to enable them to be able to secure funding where maybe previously they didn't have any success? I think it teaches a lot. I mean, I think, I think number one, it teaches the kind of capital. Um, and that's a big challenge. You know, for some businesses, uh, borrowing money makes more sense. Um, and so that's having debt. For some businesses, uh, having an equity investor makes more sense. So that's more of like the Dragon's Den style where someone puts money into a business and then they get to own a certain proportion, you know, portion of your business. Um, and in some cases, there are, you know, free government grants and other kind of, um, you know, credits available they don't even know existed. So I think opening their eyes to the forms of capital that exist, that's huge. Um, I think learning, you know, helping them learn how to, how to, um, talk about their business is key. You know, you should be able to, in three or four minutes, quickly articulate to someone the key things they need to know about a business. Everything from, you know, what the business actually does. That seems obvious, but sometimes it's hard <laughs> for people to explain that. Who their customers are, like who's writing the checks, you know, so what? Like, why does this business matter? Is somebody actually buying the product or buying the service? Um, you know, understanding their competitive lands landscape. Um, and, and really then in the end asking for something. So they need, you know, $200,000 for X percent stake in their business because they want to do what? So what is it they're going to do with the money? Is it for marketing? Is it to, you know, expand somehow into another facility? Um, is it to hire people? You know, uh, is it to, for product development or R&D? Um, so I think being able to articulate the use of proceeds, we call that, um, is really important because investors want to know what they're going to do. And most importantly, they want to know what the entrepreneur's vision for growth is mm -hmm. and hear that passion from them. Uh, and that's what's going to make an investor want to be involved. And that's what we really try to help encourage entrepreneurs to bring out in their pitches. In your group of semifinalists this year, I understand it's open to companies, entrepreneurs from across Canada. Can you give me a bit of a snapshot of the demographics? What ages are they? Where are they coming from? What sectors are they in? Yeah, you know what? I mean, the the only constant is that they're all women, uh, but they're from everywhere, every, you know, east to west, um, you know, varying sectors um, uh, from, you know, technology to consumer products to, you know, all, all sorts in between. We had a lot of interesting companies kind of geared toward the medical space this year, which was exciting. Um, I would say one real common thing that we've seen, and, and by the way, very di diverse um 
age, uh, you know, age, uh, age range and, uh, um, and, you know, just a lot of diversity overall. But one real common thread I've noticed, and this is progressively happening every year, is that um, either social justice piece that, you know, wanting to run a good ethical company piece. Um, and I don't know whether that's in general uh, starting to flow through into entrepreneurs, uh, uh, you know, of all demographics, but I'm certainly seeing it through the course of uh, what we're running with FWE. Mm-hmm. I mean, people want uh, they want to make sure that they're, you know, that they have fairness kind of across the board in their businesses, that they're being as em- environmentally friendly as they can, that it's completely sustainable, um, everything from their packaging to, to er- you know, any aspect of their best practices uh, within the business. And um, it's really, really exciting to see. And I'm really proud of all the companies. Yeah. Now, tell me, you just had your semifinalist final pitch yesterday, and now you have three finalists. What can you tell me about yesterday's event and, and the three that will be continuing on with the program? Yeah, so yesterday was our uh, West Coast um, semifinals. And then a few weeks ago, we had an East, East Coast semifinals in Toronto. So out of the two events, we have three finalists who will be pitching February 21st uh, at our gala, uh, which is the finals for the pitch for the purse. Um, the three companies are Copper Medical, um, a, a woman named Jessica uh, from Toronto, um, Patrice, who's got Satya Organics, and Sonia from Skipper Auto. Um, copper Medical, they do copper-infused hospital scrubs because copper is known to reduce uh, the spread of infection by like 95%. Mm. So that's a really neat business. Um, Satya Organics, she makes an incredible um, product for eczema that uh, is completely all natural, non-steroidal and works better than anything out there on the market. You've got to buy that, Satya Organics. Uh, and Skipper Auto, which is um, a sustainable um, su- subscription um, model for uh, seafood. Um, and it really kind of eliminates the mid part of the supply chain uh, or the, the, you know, the chain in terms of how many hands touch the fist, you know exactly where your fish comes from. And um, and it's a really a, a model to help support um, independent fishing families um, you know, from across the area. And uh, so that everybody makes money and, um, and that the end consumer gets fish that they know where it came from. Very interesting and super relevant too, especially here on the West Coast in BC. Now, ahead of the final gala event, what will these entrepreneurs be doing and how will they be engaging in the program? Well, what I'm most proud of uh, that we do is that this program is not, it's really about education. It's not a contest on its own. And so we run it quite like, you know, the show, The Voice. And so the three um, judge mentors from the semifinals, um, Brian Paisbrega, Ali Pedgman, and Sophia Mizell, um, they are all, um, they all become the mentors to each of these three companies. So they all represent, uh, they each represent one of those companies. And so from yesterday to February 20th, first, they'll be mentoring them and they will be helping them, you know, hone their pitches and really, really be ready um, for, and then at the finals, they'll introduce their, their finalist uh, to the, you know, to the crowd of 700 people and uh, be there cheering them on. And, uh, you know, hopefully they'll provide mentorship beyond as well. It's, um, I think they're all really excited and we're very thankful to those judge mentors for dedicating their time. Sounds like a very exciting time, especially for the entrepreneurs. Uh, Christina, thanks so much for coming on and, and sharing with our audience a little bit more about the program. No problem. Thanks for having me. That's Christina Anthony, founder and chair emeritus of FWE. BC is home to several examples of successful co-op businesses, MEC, Van City, Otter Co-op, 
to name just a few. It's an interesting option for a business model. In fact, Van City and the BC Cooperative Association have seen enough demand for their twice annual BC Co-op Cooperate Now boot camp that they say they could even offer it twofold. The program is in its fourth year and a boot camp is actually underway right now. LV Del Bianco, Program Manager of Cooperative Partnerships at Van City, joins me now on a break from the boot camp. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Happy to be here, Haley. I think a lot of people will have encountered a cooperative business model, but maybe you can explain for me in your own words what exactly a cooperative business model involves. Uh, There are many types of co-ops, but what they all have in common is a democratic ownership and governance structure and a commitment to the seven cooperative principles that are laid down by the International Cooperative Alliance. After that, they're very different. They're consumer co-ops where the consumers are members, producer co-ops like we see in agriculture where the producers are the owners, and worker co-ops where the uh, workers uh, are the owners and operators of their business. And what are the the advantages of, say, a business owner choosing a co-op model as opposed to another kind of business structure? Well, I'd say it's advantageous to business owners. I mean, these are these are not just single proprietorships, but groups of people working together. And there are a number of advantages, but primarily it's about uh, the collective ownership of uh, a business that provides some common need that the members need. It could be for a good or a service. It could be for some kind of common infrastructure, or it could be just uh, employment opportunities. So that really depends on the co-op, the co-op. Um, the joke where I work is that when you've met one co-op, you've met one co-op. They're all a little bit different because they all serve different communities of interest that have their own specific needs. Now, would it be fair to sort of use the analogy of shareholders in a company? How might this structure of a co-op be similar or different to, to a shareholder type scenario? Yeah, there's some similarities, but the differences are more important. I mean, if we think of a, your classic kind of corporate structure, we would say that that has ownership but no membership. In a not-for-profit society, you would have uh, membership and no ownership. Uh, Cooperative is right in the middle of those two. Membership is ownership. Ownership is membership. You have a vested interest in uh, the operation of the business because you stand to gain personally from it, but in a democratic fashion. So how does that structure then influence uh, co-op's ability to scale because it's membership, but also ownership. Yeah, well, this uh, co-ops have particular challenges around accessing capital. They can't go to the stock market, for example, to get to get uh, resources. So they generally rely on the capital of their membership. That doesn't mean that they can't engage in, in financing with credit unions or other financial institutions in order to scale up. Uh, so there are some particular challenges that way, but we've seen lots of examples of co-ops achieving significant scale. Um, in British Columbia, if you mentioned some of these at the beginning, I mean, Van City, we have 535,000 uh, members. Um, Mountain Equipment Co-op operates across the country, and their membership is in the millions. Uh, so scale is not necessarily a hindrance. It is possible to achieve uh, greater scale if that's in the interest of the co-op to do it. And a lot of co-ops, that's not necessarily the case. It really depends on what the members need. I think a lot of people will be familiar, say, going to MEC, you want to buy something, and if you don't have a a membership card, you have to pay, I think it's $5, get your card, and then you're on your way. What exactly comes with that membership? Because a lot of people may not really understand that it's not just the ability to buy goods, but you're part of something a bit greater. Yeah. The 
membership, the, the, your share, your membership share is uh, the third principle of cooperatives, that you have to have a skin in the game. Uh, that, give, that unlocks the democracy of the co-op. Now, there's a political democracy that gives you the ability to vote, to uh, choose your board of directors, to run for the board of directors, if that's your interest. It also unlocks an economic democracy, and how much, and that is the benefit, the economic benefit you, be, you, you have from being part of that co-op. Now, the more you use that co-op, the more you benefit from it. Uh, but that membership share varies dramatically from co-op to co-op. MEC, it's true, has five, uh, $5 share. This is, I wouldn't say a token amount, but it's, it's a modest amount in order to reduce the barrier to entry. At Van City, we also have a $5 share. Um, which is the same that we had in 1946 when we were established. But that's not true for other co-ops. Uh, Moto, the car-sharing co-op in Vancouver, has a membership share of $500. Now, that's because they run a fleet of some 500 automobiles, and they rely on that membership share to be able to uh, acquire those automobiles. Worker co-ops, um, where you get the opportunity to work and have a full-time salary, in the Lower Mainland will charge anywhere between five dollars and $15,000 to become a member. Um, in other countries, uh, the membership share for a worker co-op can be uh, significantly higher. There are places in Italy that charge 100,000 euros to become a member of a workers cooperative. Hmm. So it really depends on the, uh, the business and how much they rely on that membership share in order to be able to capitalize their business and operate their business. Um, but it, across the board, it's all the same. It unlocks this political and economic democracy. And could this model be applied virtually in any sector to any kind of business if, if the willingness is there and the shared values are there? Well, we certainly see co-ops across the board doing all kinds of interesting things from manufacturing, transportation, agriculture, housing, um, the provision of a wide range of, uh, of retail goods. Um, so it is really up to uh, you know the conditions in the market that allow for some opportunity for business to get like this to get in, and just what the needs of that community of interest are. So it, potentially, yes, co-ops can be applied anywhere. And can you take a pre-existing business that's not a co-op and turn it into a co-op down the line? Uh, yes, and in fact, there's a, I think there's a big opportunity to do this in the near future. I mean, we talk a lot about uh, the aging baby boomers, the so-called uh, uh, silver tsunami of aging baby boomers who are, who are getting ready to, who have run small businesses for their life and now are looking to, uh, to retire. Uh, some of these businesses are of such a scale that maybe they're not attracting an outside uh, purchaser. Or maybe they don't have uh, a child to, to gift the business to. I think there's an opportunity there to convert those into worker co-ops and allow the, uh, the employees, the current employees, to buy out the business and run it as a workers cooperative. That's very interesting. Now, if someone were interested in this, and I imagine you have people going through your boot camp right now and have in previous years, they have a lot of questions around what they should consider when trying to make a decision as to whether a co-op structure is right for them and their business, what would you say? What is what is it important to walk through? Yeah, first and foremost, I, I spent about half my time talking people into this model, and the other half talking people out of it. <laughs> I mean, because it really depends on 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 the circumstances that they have. I mean, first and foremost, you need a community of people. You can't have a cooperative of one. Right. I mean, legally in British Columbia, you require three people or three organizations because organizations can form a co-op too or some combination of the two. So you have to have that community. And within that community, you have to have a common need. 
So everybody has to be on the same page that we need a co-op in order to deliver X. Could be a good or a service, could be some infrastructure, could be an employment opportunity. Uh, after that, then there's a whole other range of things to consider. Um, you know, do they have the technical skills to be able to carry out the business? If they don't, where are they going to get those skills? Do they have the financial resources to, to uh, invest in the business? If they don't, do they have the capacity to leverage resources like taking out personal loans? And then most importantly, do they have the capacity to work together? Do they share uh, the same values? Do they have an experience working in a collective kind of fashion? Do they have the ability to work democratically? These are the kinds of things that people need to consider before they set up their co-op. Mm -hmm. I mentioned the popularity of the boot camp that's ongoing now, but I'm curious even anecdotally, what are you hearing from people? Is there more interest generally in a model like this? Are we seeing more examples of co-ops crop up in BC? What's your take? Uh, I think there's a lot of interest in this model right now. And I think whenever economic conditions are difficult, people tend to uh, to move towards this model. When When times are good, it's easier to make money on your own. Mm -hmm. When times are challenging, I think it requires people to sort of work together in concert in order to meet their needs together. And um, uh, I find that there's a lot of interest in this model. I think the market um, is challenging out there for a lot of people, especially in the lower male and especially around things like access to space. And so they're, they're banding together in order to, uh, to try and achieve their goals. Interesting. Now, if someone had questions about co-ops or was interested in a boot camp, where could they go and how could they potentially get involved in a program that would walk them through this model? Right. This is a partnership with the British Columbia Cooperative Association, and the applications are all run through uh, through them. And so if they were to look at bcca.coop, uh, so that's C-O-O-P, uh, they can find a link to the program. Um, I would, when applications open, I encourage people to get in there early because we're turning away almost as many people as we're taking for this program. Hmm, there you go. I've been speaking with LV Del Bianco, Program Manager of Cooperative Partnerships at Van City. LV, thanks so much for coming on the show. My pleasure. Thank you. That's it for our show. Thanks for listening to BIB Today. Subscribe to us on iTunes and Stitcher. Share our show on social media, listen to episodes, and read more business news over at BIV.com. I'm Haley Wooden. Thanks again for listening. 